Hey, we uh, as a church are kind of toggled between um, learning together a practice of Jesus and then getting back into a book um, out of the Bible. And so we are taking a pause and we're getting back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, hey, this guy up there is raising his hand, needs a Bible. How's it going? We're going to get you one. Someone moving up there. There he is. Um, So we're in Matthew chapter 9. Would you go ahead and turn there with me? Matthew chapter 9. And uh, let me go ahead and pray because we will need it. God, thanks for each person here and just the stories of how you have encountered us with your love. God, may we be more and more a community of your love even after our time together tonight, we pray. Amen. Uh, There was a moment when my life made a radical change, and it was not that hike, Alex. Uh, There was another moment where uh, my life turned and pivoted, and it was when I was 17 years old in San Jose, California, and I was in front of my house, um, senior in high school, and I had this Volkswagen bug, so I was regularly working on it because it was a Volkswagen bug. And uh, I was in front of my house working on it with a friend and a guy in my neighborhood that I knew who was older and I respected, he was cool. I remember like at a garage sale, I bought one of his old surfboards or wetsuits. And so this is a guy I looked up to in the neighborhood and the community. And uh, he is walking by and he's walking by uh, this afternoon barefoot. He's got kind of long blonde hair, piercing blue eyes and looked kind of like a California Jesus. And he stopped and his name is Greg, and he started talking to me. And he saw like um, stickers on my, the window of my bug of bands I liked and was asking me about them and talking about going to shows. And before I knew it, I'd been sucked away from my car and my friend, and I was kind of standing, you know, about 10 feet away on the sidewalk now, listening to this guy, Greg, basically tell me a story that was very similar to my own, but where he had pursued partying girls and this whole lifestyle and ended up totally empty, but now had found new life in Jesus. And for the first time in a very long time, I was actually intrigued. I had been living completely the opposite of the way of Jesus, and this was a moment where I actually began to change. And I don't know about you, but um, those origin stories are so powerful. And tonight what we're going to get into is Matthew, actually the gospel writer Matthew and his origin story. So please turn with me, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. If you remember what happened just before this was an episode that Matthew tells of Jesus healing this man that's been paralyzed from birth. And not only does Jesus heal this man, but he also declares that his sins are forgiven. So there's quite a bit of buzz right now about Jesus. People are talking. He's this young upstart rabbi from the north. He has controversial teachings. Some say he has miraculous powers. And more and more people are talking and want to see and hear what this Jesus of Nazareth is all about. And then the story begins. Chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. So look up for a second. We'll get back to the text, but just pause for a second. So this is Jesus and a few of his disciples. They're in Capernaum uh, near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has just healed a man. They're walking by, and all of a sudden, 
he sees this man, Matthew, and engages with him. Now, Matthew is described as a tax collector. So if you think back to the history in that time in the first century, there was a Roman occupation of Israel, and there was Herod Antipas who was ruling, and he had three sons. And each of his three sons he gave, split up Israel into three provinces and gave those to his three sons. And when you passed from one province to another, you paid a toll. So you go into one province, one of the brothers gets paid. You go into the other province, the other brother gets paid. And what's more is not only a toll, like in today it would be like crossing a bridge and paying a toll, not only a toll, but if you were doing any kind of business and you had any kind of goods, your goods would be taxed. And as you may have heard, the toll collector or the tax collector would add on his fee on top of that. And basically, he had at his back all the power of Rome. So nearby a tax collector's booth would be a Roman centurion. So in other words, there was massive extortion going on. You could outright rip somebody off, and if they argued, they could be fined more they could have their goods and land confiscated and even put in jail. But on top of that, this guy Matthew was himself Jewish. He was of the people of Israel. But at some point in his story, he decided to turn his back on family, turn his back on his countrymen, and instead get paid. He basically sold out for money. So not only was this guy like, super annoying. It's like, at first, you're like, oh, this is like, you know, a parking attendant. I, I like park, and I forget it. My time expires, and I walk out, and there's the deathly yellow envelope, right? Pay $60, or whatever it is. I wouldn't know. Just kidding. I totally do know. They're different, depending on where you park. Uh, <laughs> so it's not just that it's like this, you messed up, and you get this annoying fine. It's so much more than that. This guy isn't just annoying, he's absolutely despised. So think for a minute what it felt like to be Matthew. Put yourself in his place for just a second. He'd sold himself out for money. He's hated by everyone, probably including his own family. When people approach him, they make approach him laughing and they're on their journey and then all of a sudden they see him and their countenance just drops. They probably utter a curse to each other about him. And I imagine after some time, this guy might even begin to hate himself. Because you can only do injustice or oppressive acts for so long before what you do in your occupation begins to affect your soul. I think the human body is designed that way, right? Like what we do with our physical bodies, what we, the actions that we partake in eventually actually creep in and affect our soul. So if I put myself in his shoes, I could only imagine the emptiness and the shame that this guy dealt with. And then comes Jesus. This young prophet, light in his eyes, a spring in his step, the kingdom of God in his heart. And instead of a glare, instead of the like shame-inducing shaking of the head, Jesus says, Matthew, I choose you. Be my disciple. Learn my way. Come follow me. 
And in an instant, Jesus calls Matthew into a completely different life, a completely different identity, so radical that he actually leaves his vocation. And I don't know what that was like. Like it describes a booth and there was probably like a little box with the money and a little lock and a key. And in my mind, I just imagine him leaving the key on the box, getting up from his seat and walking away. And can you imagine for a moment what Jesus' other disciples are thinking, right? They're probably like, oh, no, 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 not this guy, Jesus. A Samaritan, a Roman centurion, gladly add one of those to the crew, but not a tax collector. This is the guy that put my uncle in prison for not paying him. And what, what do you think people are going to, what are my family going to think if I'm with you, Jesus, and now this guy, Matthew, is with us too? No, please, Jesus. But to Matthew, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. He doesn't want to miss it. He gets up and follows right away. And the literary style here is really interesting. It's this quick succession of verbs. It's almost staccato. Jesus says, follow me. He gets up. He follows him. And the reason Matthew writes like that, remember, the biblical authors, there's an economy to their literature. They can't write on and on page after page. Paper was very scarce. Every word is important. Every word was thought through. And Matthew writes it like this because he wants to describe this immediate obedience. Matthew heard, he got up, he followed. It's beautiful, but it's also hard. I mean, how many times have I actually heard God and I've sensed God's asking me to do something and I drag my feet? I kind of rationalize or just wait till that feeling or that sense hopefully goes away, right? Uh, just the other day, I was riding my bike to the office through Old Town. Some of you guys have been praying for me, riding my bike, stopping stop signs and all that. I'm doing a lot better. Thank you. Appreciate it. You got to pray for your pastors, man. Uh, thank you. So, you know, I'm riding my bike through Old Town and I'm thinking about whatever, and uh, I see this woman on the sidewalk. First, I hear her. She's saying kind of the same thing out loud, like frustrated. She doesn't have shoes. She's just wearing socks. And she looks like she's having a rough one. Probably mental illness. Something's going on, right? And I ride my bike by her. I'm like, whoa. And then back to my thoughts. And then all of a sudden, kind of my thoughts are going this direction. And then cutting across my thoughts is a new thought, which is go pray for her. So I think it's probably God. I was like, I was thinking another direction. All of a sudden, I'm like, ah. So instead of stopping right away and doubling back to pray for her, I just keep going for a few more blocks, you know? And I'm like, ah. Mm. And then I think of this and standing up here and teaching you guys about Matthew. And I doubled back and went alongside <laughs> and prayed for her. And nothing miraculous happened. I don't know. It was a little uncomfortable. I just kind of prayed alongside her. But here's the thing. I know that that's how I want to be with the Father. That when I hear God and I sense the Spirit saying, Gerald, do this. Go pray for this person. Stop that. I want to be the kind of person that responds right away. And I look at this example from Matthew and I realize, okay, I got a little ways to go. But Matthew beautifully demonstrates this obedience. And just a quick like sidebar on obedience. You know, it's Father's Day. And uh, as a dad, I'm a dad of three teens, and when our kids were little, 
Jenny and I decided and learned from other mentors, like, man, we want to help teach our kids to obey. The scripture says that, Ephesians 6, 1, right? Children, obey your parents. Go look it up. It says that. Uh, so we're like, okay, we want to help our kids to learn to obey us so that someday it will be easier for them to obey God, right? And so we learned, you're going to like this, that there's four aspects to obedience. Number one, it's immediate. Number two, it's, this guy laughs when I said that. <laughs> and parents are like, yeah. Uh, it's immediate, it's complete, it's without complaint, and it's with a happy attitude. And anything less isn't actually obedient. So think that through for a second. Um, wouldn't it be nice if everybody acted that way? I mean, think about a work environment. If you're the boss and you tell your team, hey guys, expense reports are due by noon to get those to finance, everybody get them done by noon. Wouldn't it be nice if they were done immediately? They were done completely, so you didn't have to go back and fix people's mistakes. And wouldn't it be nice if when you told the team that, everybody wasn't like, no, do we have to? No, but they did it without complaint. They did it with a happy attitude. Wouldn't that be great? Well, thank you. One person agrees. (laughs) Your parents probably taught you that too, huh? I know your dad. He did teach you that. Yeah. But really... That's exactly how obedience is supposed to be with God our Father. And Matthew seems to nail it right here. He shows what it's like to be a follower of Jesus in his immediate obedience, but not only that, in this willingness willingness to leave everything. Such a radical concept that Jesus, when he comes into your life and at different stages of your life, actually asks you to leave things for him. Dallas Willard, the sermon wouldn't be complete without Dallas Willard, so Dallas Willard says it this way, becoming a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus cannot be negotiated. Rather, becoming a disciple is a matter of giving up your life as you have understood it at that point. There's something here that I think we need to listen to. There's something about when you follow Jesus that you don't negotiate with him, that he actually becomes your king and you follow him. And that's what Matthew does. Again, the scripture says that he arose. He got up or here, I like the translation that says arose, and here's why. Matthew uses that specific word to tie that back to the previous healing. Remember what happened previously? Um, There's a guy paralyzed born that way from life, he gets healed, and the scripture says that the man got up, he arose. And then Matthew uses that same verb here and says that he, when he heard Jesus call, arose. So why is Jesus doing that? Two reasons. Excuse me, Matthew doing that. Two reasons. One, he wants to tie his conversion, his origin story, to the miraculous story of the guy that was healed. He's like, remember when that guy couldn't walk and then he got up, he rose, and he walked out and his sins were forgiven? Remember that? Well, Matthew says, that's exactly what happened to me. Jesus came into my life, he healed me, and I got up in the same way and followed after him. Both Matthew and the paralytic were healed and arose to new life. But also, This idea of Matthew and saying that he arose ties into a greater reality. At the end of his gospel, and Matthew, as he's penning this, knows what's coming. 
At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus will die and three days later arise. And Matthew sees his story tied into the resurrection story of Jesus. The change is so radical in Matthew's heart and in his entire life, it's like he was dead and now he's alive. And you guys know this is true about you as well. The scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, the, they're a new creation, that the old is gone and that new has come. You were dead and now you're alive and not partly alive. If anyone is alive in Christ, they're completely alive to God, completely forgiven, born again by the Spirit of God in you. Matthew is a new man, and he begins to follow Jesus. And look what happens next. Verse 10. Look back down. Verse 10. You guys there? Verse 10 says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, notice they don't ask Jesus, they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what happens here is there's a quick scene change, right? Matthew gets up, he starts following Jesus. Next thing you know, they're celebrating at a meal, eating and drinking. So typical of Jesus, right? Now remember this. A meal in the ancient Near East, in a home, wouldn't actually be in the home. The homes are very, very small and mainly for sleeping, maybe cooking. But outside in the courtyard, in this dry, arid climate, is where you would have a meal like this. So the Pharisees aren't even actually in the meal, invited to the table. They're on the outside. I imagine like a low courtyard wall, and they're standing there, but they can see and hear everything that's happening in this scene. Jesus Matthew, his new disciple, and apparently all of Matthew's friends who are called sinners. So what does that mean? When Matthew uses that word, what does he mean by that? Basically, it's a pretty junk drawer term that includes a lot of people. Anyone who didn't obey the Old Testament law, those who were ceremonially unhealthy, the sick, lepers, those who were even so poor that they couldn't travel all the way to Jerusalem where the temple had basically been hijacked and the, you know, there was exorbitant cost to go worship in the temple. The poor couldn't do that, so they were considered in this group. And then also it was tax collectors, prostitutes, those that were by their profession were deemed unclean and outcast. But this is a huge group. So what's the significance of Jesus eating with them? Is it just, well, you know, Jesus loves the outcast and we should love everybody too? Well, yeah, but it's actually much more than that. For Jesus, a meal like this with this company is actually a sign of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Jesus is thinking about in the future, this final feast that's coming, and I'm going to put this text up real quick. I want to show you where Jesus is getting this from. Isaiah chapter 26, it says this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. How many peoples? All peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So in other words, in Jesus' thinking, there is a day to come when the kingdom of God is fully realized. When heaven comes to earth, there's this great feast. And at that feast, 
is people from the east, people from the west, all peoples, Jews, Gentiles, those that are clean, those that are not, all together around the table with the Lord at the center of it. So when Jesus eats like this, that's what he's talking about. One more, um, earlier in Matthew chapter 8, he says it this way. He says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, meaning like the opposite ends of the globe, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So, when Jesus has this meal, he's enacting his vision for the kingdom of God, showing God's divine hospitality. This is not just an invitation for sinners to eat with Jesus. This is an invitation into the kingdom of God. And look who he's inviting. Tax collectors, sinners. And what's interesting is we know that many of these are are the ones that actually do become his disciples. Fishermen, prostitutes, sinners of all different kinds, and those that were lepers and outcasts in this society, Gentiles, Samaritans, women who in that culture were pushed outside of the center of power. And those are the ones that follow Jesus. And the the Pharisees don't like this. So who are the Pharisees? If you grew up in church, um, you hear the word Pharisee, and you normally would be like, boo, right? You just... If you grew up around Sunday school, they're the bad guys. But hold on. These guys were actually the Bible-believing folks of Jesus' day. One scholar nicknamed them the serious. They were serious about the scriptures, about holiness, morality, and obeying God. They actually started out as very good guys. Some scholars would even say if Jesus was lumped in with any group in the first century, it would be the Pharisees. They wanted Israel, this was their goal, they wanted Israel to obey all the laws of the Torah so that Messiah would come. And they were intense and diligent about it. The problem was they might be missing that Jesus is actually that Messiah in their midst. And unfortunately, over time, the Pharisees created this culture where anyone who didn't add up to their measure of holiness was shut out from life with them and ultimately, in their mind, shut out from life with God. And it's interesting because basically the Pharisees created this culture of morality, and those who obeyed were in, and those who didn't, who fell short, were out. And I think, if I'm honest, in certain parts of my story, the past 25 years or so of following Jesus, I've been part of communities like that too where there's kind of a condescending attitude towards those who don't toe the moral line. And I think there's a warning in there even for us. So the Pharisees are obsessed with being set apart by what they did or what they didn't do. And when it came to a meal, this was a clear boundary marker for who was in and who was out. But to Jesus, he absolutely destroys those boundaries and transforms the table into a place of welcome, a place to draw people into the presence of God. So he gladly eats with the tax collectors and the sinners and calls them to follow him in repentance. And the Pharisees earnestly want to know why. They're afraid to ask Jesus, but they want to know why, right? This Jesus seems to be serious about the Bible too. He's a Bible teacher. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. So why is he doing this? For them, this was a real tension. 
So on hearing their question, Jesus responds. Verse 12, read with me. Verse 12 says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Then he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus answers them brilliantly with three responses. Response one is this appeal to common sense. This was a proverb known in the day, which is, um, wouldn't, you know, this idea of, how does he say it? Um, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus didn't make that up. That was a, con- that was a phrase that people use. But Jesus uses that to create common ground. It's kind of like, um, he says to the Pharisees, hey, um, guys, you think all these people are sick, right? Yeah, they're unclean, right? And my job is to bring healing. So wouldn't it make sense, guys, if I would go where the sick people are to bring them healing? That's his argument. See, the Pharisees had a view of salvation by segregation, but Jesus shows them that salvation is actually by association. Jesus became man, took on flesh and blood, lived among us, to bring in the kingdom of God. And they are in danger of missing that important lesson. So first he responds with this common sense argument. Secondly, to those that are serious about the Bible, he appeals to the Bible. And it's a little bit, um, you know, the way he says it was probably funny and probably stung a little bit. He says to the Bible guys, hey, why don't you guys go home and study your Bibles? Find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from the Old Testament from the prophet Hosea, and he's basically telling them, hey boys, go home and do your homework, because I think you're missing the plot. He speaks their language, Bible. He's challenging them to look again. He's challenging them to consider that God has a higher law. Loving the unclean is greater than religious works in his kingdom. Jesus is warning them, like, guys, there's a practice of religion that actually contradicts the will of God. And this is good for us to think through, too. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons and get the wrong results. We should pay attention to this warning. Response three, he appeals to his own mission. He says, guys, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The third point is Jesus is just basically saying, my identity, the reason I'm here, my actual mission is to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. So if you want to know why I'm sitting and eating and drinking with the outcast, with the sinners, it's because that's my whole goal. But ironically, the question really to the Pharisees is will they recognize their sickness? and their need to be saved. See, the Pharisees don't think they need a doctor because their illness is thinking that they are well. So Jesus' kingdom, clearly in this beautiful picture, is for those who humbly acknowledge their sin and their need for a savior. So as we kind of wind down, I want to think about this and these two examples. On one hand, you have this beautiful example of Matthew. He encounters Jesus. Jesus invites him into this new life to leave the old behind, and he gets up and he does that right away. And then on the other hand, 
you have the Pharisees. And they are doing all these religious works, trying to earn acceptance, and yet completely missing it. So think for yourself, which of those two people do you identify more with? Majority of us are over there, but there's probably a few that you do identify with the Pharisee. And you do struggle with workspace, like, oh man, if I miss my morning time with God two, three days in a row, I know God's angry. Or if I fall into that, that habitual sin that I'm trying not to do, if I do that, oh, I can't even go back and approach God because he's so mad. You maybe are having a transactional relationship with God where you have to do certain things to keep God happy. And I just want to say that that's actually not true. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. His love for you is constant. There's no work that you have to do for approval. But most of us are probably on the other end. We probably need to, I told you about my first encounter with my neighbor and really coming to Jesus, but most of us kind of need to do that again. It's not a one and done. There's this rhythm as a disciple of Jesus where you constantly ask Jesus to speak. It's like these layers of an onion, like God in his graciousness continues to show me layers that need to be peeled off in repentance. And what that is, is really that's the graciousness. The scripture even says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Just as Matthew, when God, when Jesus encountered Matthew, he didn't like wag his finger at him and shame him. He invited him into life that's truly life. And ultimately, when God points something out in my life and in your life and says, Gerald, leave that behind. It's because he's calling me deeper into true life, away from the false substitute, right? That's what repentance is. It's turning away from something that's not genuinely giving you the life that God has for you. So I just wonder in this moment, if you would imagine yourself and Jesus coming to you at this stage in your life, at this season, beginning of summer, Thank God it's summer. Beginning of summer, what would Jesus ask you to turn away from? You know, um, two years ago, uh, like everyone else, I was having fun on Instagram and enjoying it and, you know, posting, seeing what friends are doing, but Jesus showed me that it was doing something bad to my heart, that there was just impurity and temptation for lust. There was jealous. I would see friends that um, were, lived in warmer places with closer proximity to better waves, and I would be jealous that I wasn't there surfing and living their life. And Jesus was like, dude, you need to stop. So I did. I logged out of my Instagram account, and for two years, and amazingly, I didn't even miss it. All I had was more time and energy. It was incredible. Uh, but, I, but I logged out of Instagram, and then my wife for her birthday was like, honey, you should get back on and post a picture of me for my birthday. So I did. It wasn't exactly like that, but um, point being, Point being, there are seasons and rhythms of life. It's not a one and done with Jesus where you're like, okay, that one time I gave my life to Jesus. We continue to do that. And it's a beautiful turning away from what's sucking life 
and turning to the life that is truly life.